Well, this morning I'm going to continue on in our uh, discussion on revival. We've been talking about uh, revival, and for many of us in this room, that word revival, uh, that word revival is somewhat loaded. That word revival comes with a lot of feelings. It comes with a lot of emotions. It comes with a lot of memories. For some of us, when we hear the word revival, we think of a special series of, of meetings. And when I first started talking about revival, some of you thought, oh, are we going to have a Monday through Friday revival? Or are we going to have a special series of meetings? And, and who knows, God may bring us to that place. We may we may do something like that at some point, but what I really felt led of the Lord was for us as a community to really talk about what it means to be in revival, to be people of revival, because revival is more than just a special series of meetings. Revival really is something that the, the Lord does in us. Some of us, when we think about revival, we think about guest speakers, uh, we think about uh, different styles of, of music. You know, we always loved when it was the time of the year for uh, revival to come because the church would learn new songs. The evangelist and his wife would come and, and they would always bring new songs with them and they would have those, uh, those cassette tapes and it was awesome because it was like, oh man, finally we're going to get some new songs. Anybody? Um, for some of us, revival uh, was about, um, it was just about a shift that would happen in, in seasonally in the church and it would breathe fresh life or fresh air into the church. And I always craved those times as a kid growing up. Perhaps revival to us meant a sort of a change in the, rigid, the, the rhythm of activities in the church. Like I said, sometimes it would be a special set of meetings. And so it would change up the normal way that we would do things. And just that little bit of change of rhythm was something we looked forward to. Regardless of what revival, uh, the word revival or the thought of revival means to you, uh, we've been trying to understand what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus? Because for some of you in this room, perhaps you didn't grow up around a church or in an environment where the word revival uh, was used over the last few weeks as I uh, just have been in this season and 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 uh uh, praying and thinking about and studying about revival, I stumbled upon uh, some anti-revival books uh, that were written during some of the great awakenings that happened um, in the church over the last couple of hundred years. And it was very fascinating uh, because I've always grown up in the side of the church that's been pro-revival. Um, so I had never, I had never really uh, read a lot of uh, from especially uh, historic writers who during the Great Awakening and all of these different things were sort of pushing against revival and the extremes of revivalism. And, and at the heart of all of those things that I read, really um, in spite of where those people may have uh, fell historically, the heart of what was there was really a desire and a call for the body of Christ, if it's going to do anything, to do it biblically. It doesn't matter what many of these writers were saying. Was it, If God wants to show up and he wants to do things, it's wonderful. But we as God's people still have a responsibility to come into alignment with God's word. The excesses and the, the hurt of movements of revival that have happened have been when the body of Christ has not handled the presence of God with that holiness and judiciously as I was talking about earlier. It has happened when God's people have taken for granted who God is and his sovereignty and his might and his power. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote 
in revival, you get this curious, strange mixture, as it were, of great conviction of sin and great joy, great sense of terror of the Lord and great thanksgiving and praise. As I've studied scripture, what I have found is that 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 balance, if you will, or that sort of going back and forth between this response to sin and my own sinfulness and, and this joy of the freedom that comes in Christ, this sense of being excited about God doing signs and wonders and miracles among his people, but also this sort of being awestruck by the holiness of his presence has been characteristic of the move of God among his people throughout all of human history as you trace the move of God among his people both in scripture and historically it always seems that there is this this pool between these two sorts of feelings or emotions revival seemed to signal a strange mixture of things i talked about it last week for me growing up in the church and growing up around churches where revival was taking place, that there was this mixture of feelings and emotions that, that I dealt with. And even as I grew up and matured in my own life and ministry, this mixture between a craving for the presence of God and the move of God in a tangible way that changed, immediately changed the circumstance. And yet this sort of dread knowing that for every high there is a low for every great move of holiness and righteousness there is a falling away of those who simply do not allow their lives to be transformed by god's presence revival as it were in scripture we come to understand is a season of god's disruptive movement among his people to stimulate awaken and restore if you study revival, if you ask me, Pastor Randy, what is revival? If I look at it historically, if I look at it biblically, I would come back to this statement over and over and over again. It is a moment of disruptive movement of God among his people. And when God disruptively moves among his people, he's doing something. He's stimulating, he's awakening, and ultimately restoring. I don't know about you. But as I look at our world today, as I look at my own lives and I look at the needs around me, my heart cries for God to disruptively move in my life and among the lives of the people I know. My heart cries out for God, for God in his power to stimulate people to an awareness of their need for him, to an awareness of the fact that he is active and that he is real and that he is alive and that he desires relationship with him. My heart craves God to awaken dead souls to a reality that there is a God in heaven who sees them, who knows them come to a place where I'm no longer convinced that I can argue anyone into the kingdom of God, that no matter how much I argue or what case I may make for morality or what case I may make for certain things socially or politically or economically, that it really isn't going to change anything, that the only thing that is going to change things will be an awakening in the presence of God. And ultimately, ultimately, what I believe with all of my heart is that we need God to restore people, that we need God to restore us. I've been a little rough on some of you the last month or so. I've been calling you out because some of you, I know your story. 
I know. I know that you have been a part of great moves of God at times in your life. I know some of you have seen revival, have experienced revival. I know some of you have been used by God in signs and wonders and miracles. I know some of you have been in seasons where God has spoken through you and used you as his hands and feet to do incredible things. And, and I've been calling you forward into those things. I've been in inviting you out of your comfort zone. I've been inviting you out of the comfort of your padded seat to move out and to move into God's presence and to begin to lead the way so that a new generation would know what it's like to be in the presence of God, to manifest and live out the presence of God every day. We had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pensioners brunch this past Wednesday. Now, you guys were a lot more excited on Wednesday. <laughs> in that pensioners brunch, I said to our senior adults, you know what? We need you. We need you. Some of us are here today, we're not, we're not quite pensioners, but we've been serving Jesus for a long time now. And we know how to pray, and we know his presence, and we know what it is to be used by God. And we've been lulled into a place of being comfortable. And I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to us, and I believe God is directing me as the pastor of this church to say to us, it is time to step forward and to move into the presence of God and to begin to model and demonstrate what it means to be people of the presence of God. Well, I'll expect a lot of amens there. Revival, a season of God's disruptive movement among his people. This shouldn't be too shocking because it is what happens when we meet God. We talked about it last week. If you weren't here last week, you can go to our app. Go to our app. You can go to our website. You can go to Podbean. You can download it. Last week, we talked about revival, intercession. It's a meeting with God. We shouldn't be, when we talk about a disruptive move of God, we shouldn't be shocked because meeting with God is always disruptive. The mistake of the mindset around revivalism has been that we view a departure from the normal routine as something that is anti-God or anti the presence of God. And yet if you study the pattern of scripture, you see this beautiful thing. God's people are in a pattern, a disciple-making pattern where they rigidly seek after and follow the presence of God. And in those, in those seasons of moving from glory to glory to glory, all all of a sudden they experience glory and when they experience glory when they experience a meeting with God something changes something happens we talk about here at North Place that we are a disciple making community you got to understand this disciple making happens in the grind and in the grand and somewhere along the line, the church has decided, oh, we're the kind, we're the kind of, we're the grind kind of church. We do this, we do these routines and we do these things and we follow these liturgies. So we're really holy because we grind it out. And then you've got another segment of the body of Christ who say, oh, no, 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 no. We're really the people of God because we have these grand moments where we experience his presence. 
And so you've got two camps within the body of Christ who both both feel self-righteous. The people over here feel like they're more holy because they have these grand moments. The people over here feel like they're more holy because they're so disciplined. All the while, the story of God's people has been both the grind and the grand. Disciple-making are people who learn the discipline of following the Holy Spirit every day, but are so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that when he wants to depart from the norm and do something different, they say, here I am, Lord. Man, that's good stuff. And we as God's people have to be mature enough to grind it out every day and be ready for the grand moments of disruption. We have to be mature enough to say, Lord, whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, I want to be a part of it. Today we're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 18 because it not only illustrates what we talked about last week, that biblical revival includes a pattern of awareness, contrition, confrontation, and ultimately transformation. It also will demonstrate a type of prayer that brings about or that releases revival, that gets the flesh out of the way and moves us to that place where we experience these grand moments of disruption. I believe it's also a nod to the day that we celebrate today, Mother's Day, because the type of prayer that I'm talking about is a birthing prayer. It's a prayer that you often see, often see, attached to our preceding great moves of God are moments that happen where God shows up and disrupts the circumstance. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture today. I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 18, verse, uh, verses 1 through 6. It says this, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophet, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each. And he had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another direction. Once again, you see it over and over and over again, the story of God's people. They had moved away from a sensitivity and a heart for his presence, for his rule in their life. They had gone their own way. And in their going their own way, Elijah the prophet had gone to Ahab and said to him, it's not going to rain. And so for three years it hadn't rained. There was a drought. There was a drought in the land. And clearly the people were suffering. What we know and what we understand very clearly about revival is that a growing awareness of need creates fertile soil for a disruptive move of God. 
Many of us are lamenting what has happened in our world over the last couple of years because we look at it through the eyes of the flesh. But if you will study human history, what you know is that when the world begins to groan, when the world becomes aware of its need and its brokenness, that is the process of the toil of the soil of the soul being toiled to the point that it starts to understand that it has a need that it cannot fill itself. And as we look around as our world with social and political unrest, and as we look around our world with all the problems associated with the pandemic and all of these things, you and I have to begin to look at it not through our natural eyes, but through our spiritual eyes and understand that it is creating fertile soil for revival. Pastor, I'm hurting. I lost my job. This has happened to me. That, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry for you. That is not, I'm not saying that flippantly. I love you. I passionately care about you. And I'm sensitive towards your individual need. But as the body of Christ this morning, we need to collectively understand that what is happening in the world is creating the conditions for revival. People are hurting, not just one person here or one person there. People are hurting. Great moves of God in history have always, have always, have always accompanied a time and a season in which people become aware of their need for something that is bigger, greater, transcendent of them. Disruptive moves of God come with confrontation and it comes with repentance. So what happened? The people became aware. We need something. We need an answer. And so Ahab said, let's go look for water. Let's go look for water. Let's go look for water. And along the way, what happens? Elijah says, okay, tell Ahab I'm coming. Tell Ahab I'm coming. And so he goes after three years of hiding from Ahab. He goes and he meets with Ahab and he says, listen, we're going to deal with this issue once and for all. So he says to Ahab, you go call the prophets of Baal. We're going to have a showdown. We're going to determine who the true God of Israel is. First Kings chapter 18, verses 30 through 31. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one from each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, you shall be Israel. So the prophets of Baal, they did their thing. They tried to call down fire. Nothing had happened after, their, after they had tried what they had wanted to do. After they made their vaccines. That's it, I'm leaving this church. I don't know, they've admitted, you still get it. After they tried their economic reforms, after they elected their government and it didn't work, and then they elected their other government and it didn't work, after they set up their social programs, After they redefined everybody's pronoun. We're still a mess. 
We're still broken. We're still hurting. We're still sick. After they had done everything they could do, the prophets of Baal had done everything they could possibly do. Elijah called the people together. He said, how about this? How about we repair the altar of the Lord? How about we reprioritize the presence of God? How about we stop trying to fix it in our own might and our own power and our false gods that we've created that we can control and that look like us? Instead, how about we do this? How about we embrace the mystery of Yahweh once again? How about we embrace a God that we can't control and we can't contain and that doesn't affirm us and make us feel good about ourselves all the time, that is bigger than us and greater than us and beyond us, who says yes and amen, who creates things that we could never imagine, a God who is big and great and glorious. How about we repair the altar of the Lord once again? And that's what they did. They repaired the altar of the Lord and they offered an altar, they offered an offering to him. In other words, revival comes a disruptive move of God comes when God's people begin to respond to God, when God's people place their attention on him, when God's people understand that he is God and we are not and they repent. That's exactly what happened. First Kings chapter 18 verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. The fire fell and transformation starts to take place. People begin to repent and things start to change. So fascinating to me. It's so violent and many of us, have a, we struggle with it theologically. We struggle with it philosophically. But when you read this story, the Bible says that when the fire fell and the people truly repented, they said, we're not going to put up with the prophets of Baal anymore. We're going to take them out and we're going to get rid of them. We're going to get rid of the altars, we're going to get rid of the nonsense, and we're going to chase after God. Revival fell, and we knew it fell. The fire fell, refreshing came, because transformation began to take place. People repented, people repented, and then they were transformed, and it started working its way into their life. And then you get to this part, so fascinating to me. Because revival wasn't just the fire. Revival was the renewal that came after the fire. Verses 41 through 44 says this. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink. And there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab, remember it hadn't rained for three years. Fires come. Sin has been dealt with. The people have repented. Elijah says, go eat and drink. There's the sound of heavy rain. There was no sound of heavy rain in the natural It hadn't rained in three years, but people were ready for a crazy man to call down rain because they had seen fire. Man, there's this whole sermon in that. Some of us have been prophesying rain for so long, and everybody looks at us like we're crazy. Maybe if we were handling the fire, they'd be able to, maybe they'd be able to trust us when we say it's about to rain. But when it's all smoke and mirrors and manipulation and building our own kingdoms and doing ministry so that we can be big and fancy and people. The king, who had been trying to kill Elijah for years, all of a sudden obeys him. 
because he's seen fire. Go eat and drink. There's the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. Hadn't done anything this guy said in years. Now he goes and he eats and drinks. Even though there's no rain, there's no sign of rain. Hadn't rained in years. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down on the ground, put his face between his knees. I probably, I, I preached the sermon years ago and I got down in that position. I'm not going to do that today because I'm a little older now. <laughs> but I've studied this quite a bit and what I understand was um, this, the way this is being described was exactly the birthing position that midwives would have women to get into as they were uh, birthing a baby. Some of you ladies who are here today, you, you know you know this position well. Go and look toward the sea, he told the servant, and he went back. He went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Oh, there's something about being a visionary person. He was already telling Ahab there's the sound of rain when there wasn't even a cloud. It took him being in the birthing position and asking over and over and over again. See, he saw in the spirit what no one else could even see. There's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servants reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariots and go down before the rain stops you. Disruptive moves of God are the result of birthing prayers. People want revival, but they don't want to pray. People want miracles, but they don't want to pray. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I've never done it myself, but I've seen it four times. Once that baby starts coming, no matter how hard it gets... No matter how painful it gets, once you're in that birthing position, you ain't coming out <laughs> till something gives. But we, like the world, have embraced abortion. In the church... Maybe because of our convenience, maybe because it's painful, maybe because we're not ready. And I'm afraid that many times we abort revival because we won't stay in the birthing position. Some of us have sat and complained and griped about the church. We've sat and complained Here's the thing, I can go on Facebook and I see all the old people griping about the church and how terrible it is and how it's not what it used to be. Then I go on Instagram and I see all the young people griping about the church, of how terrible it is and how everybody's griping. I just want to know who's praying. 
Who's praying? Who's in the birthing position? Who's going to pay the price? Who's going to stay there until something gives? Birthing prayer brings disruptive moves of God. Nature teaches us. Here's the thing. This is beautiful. Nature teaches us that same begets same. Disruptors beget disruption. If you look at any one of my children, you can tell who their mama is. Nature teaches us that same begets same. You know what? Those of us who are in the body of Christ for a long time, you want to know why we are where we are? Because we turned the church into a consumption experience, and so we have begat a generation of consumers. They don't know how to be in the presence of God. They don't know how to birth. They don't know how to give birth to a move of God. They don't know how to stay in that position until God moves and he shows up. Like I said last week, we are trained by TikTok. We are trained by Instagram. We are trained by television shows to have an attention span just like that. And if it doesn't come in a moment, we get up and we go. And same has begat same. We have begat a generation of impatient Sullen, ungrateful, lazy, self-centered. Young people, you may be saying, what, you're saying all that? I'm saying we did it. We did it. Because same begat same. You don't know the presence of God because we haven't taught you. We gripe because a worship song goes on longer than 3.2 minutes. Oh, they just, she just needs to move it on along today. We just keep singing that same chorus over and over and over again. When our first son was born, I was so scared. And I wasn't even doing it, man. By the time our fourth child was born, I was still so scared. But I knew what to expect. There's always twists and turns of these things, I'm telling you. But as I watched Desiree go through that process, she was different the fourth time than she was the first time because she had learned to give birth. Some of you, you're in, the, you're in that stage of life that you've never given birth to a, a move of God before, and this is your first time, and it's scary, and I understand that. And there's some of you, you've given birth before, the wonderful thing about our fourth child was we had a midwife with our fourth child. First child, 
at a hospital, very cold, ster sterile environment. We were young and scared, didn't know what we were doing. And they would just clinically come in and poke and prod, and it was terrible. The fourth baby, we had a midwife who was there, who was encouraging, who knew what to say, was not just concerned about the clinical process, but was concerned about us as the parents and Desiree especially. And it was a completely different experience because there was a midwife there who was helping us through the process of birthing revival. I've preached this story, I've read this story hundreds of times, but only recently the Lord started showing me something. And because I'm out of time, I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna be able to get a lot with this, but I just wanna show you something really quick because we always applaud Elijah as the one who birthed revival. But I would, I would submit to you today that, that, that Elijah was only able to birth revival because there was a midwife there who helped him to birth revival. I skipped earlier in the story, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 7 through 15. And Obadiah was walking along. Remember, Obadiah was sent by Ahab to go find water. Remember, Obadiah was the administrator in the house of Ahab. Obadiah was walking along. Remember, Obadiah was the one who had hid a hundred prophets from, from uh, old Jezebel who was trying to kill all off the prophets of the Lord. Remember that. So this man of God, God had positioned in the seat of power right next to the king. Imagine that. And Obadiah was walking along. Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And wherever a nation or a kingdom claimed that you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet, I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Get this. I want to ask you a question, and I want to end this way. Is it possible that for every Elijah, there are countless others who are midwives, Obadiahs, to the disruptive move of God that's coming next? Elijah would have never been Elijah had it not been for Obadiah. Yes, he would have been the prophet of the Lord. Yes, he would have done great things. But in this story, in this moment where fire fell and rain came, the story wouldn't have happened without an Obadiah. Without a person who used their influence and their capacity in relation to the king to arrange a meeting so that God could meet with Ahab and Ahab could meet with God, so the people could meet with God and God could meet with the people. It took an Obadiah. For many of us, I believe with all of my heart, we stay confused because we think I'm not Elijah, so I don't have a part to play. I believe 
that for every Elijah there is an Obadiah. There are people like you and me who have influence and have jobs and work in places and spaces in which God wants to use you right where you are to arrange a meeting between God and his people, between those who are rebellious with him and the one who loves them in spite of their rebellion. I believe there are people like you and me, Obadiahs, who God is saying, use your resources to finance revival, a finance hiding 50 prophets in one cave and 50 prophets in another cave. People ask me all the time, Pastor Randy, why do we not make a big deal about offering? Why don't we spend 10 minutes making everybody feel guilty so that we take up a good offering? It's this, here's what I believe. I believe that when we are people of the presence of God, I won't have to beg you to finance the move of God. I believe that. I believe I won't have to manipulate you. I won't have to lie about scripture. I won't have to teach you things that are blatantly false just to convince you to open up your wallet. I really believe that when we are people of revival, I don't have to beg you to tithe. You'll tithe because that's who we are as God's people. I just believe that. I believe that when we are people who love God's presence, whether we're Obadiah or whether we're Elijah, we'll pay whatever price we have to pay so that we can arrange a meeting between God and his people. Obadiah was in the king's palace. He went places and did things that others didn't understand, and yet that's exactly where God had him. Obadiah was a midwife to the birth that Elijah saw take place. I don't know who you are this morning. I don't know if you're Elijah or Obadiah, but I do know this. As God's people, as God's people, he's calling us. He's calling us to give birth. The world is ripe and ready. Church, I'm praying for you. I'm believing God is settling something in your heart right now. I'm believing it with everything that is within me. I will not let go of this moment. I believe every time we come together, every time we come together, the presence of the Lord is gonna be real and tangible. I believe that when our young adults come together this week, the presence of God is gonna be real and tangible and irresistible. I believe that when youth comes together on Friday night, the presence of God is gonna be real. It's gonna be tangible. It's gonna be irresistible. I still believe when we come together next Sunday, the presence of God is gonna be real. It's gonna be tangible. I believe it's gonna be so real. I'm not making a joke. I'm being serious about this. I believe that you're gonna be so hungry that you're gonna start getting here early. And before the worship team even starts, I believe some of you are gonna be up here at the front already ready. You're gonna be already ready because you're gonna be so hungry for the presence of God. That is where God is taking us. We're about to birth something because our city needs it. The world needs it, amen? Amen. And I believe you're going to carry the presence of God with you everywhere you go this week. As Obadiah, as every court you go into, every king you come in contact with, every place you go, you're going to subversively be working towards the realization of the presence of God. That's what God does in his people when revival comes. Lord, thank you so much for each one that is here today. Thank you for what you're doing.
Thank you for what you're about to do. God, I pray that you bless your people as we go about our week. Lord, raise up Obadiah, who will subversively seek the presence of God. Raise up Elijah, who will stand disruptively against the power structures and systems as they be and declare righteousness and holiness. Lord, do what only you can do through your, through your people this week. I ask it in Jesus' name. Bless every mother in this room and every mother-to-be. In Jesus' name, everybody agrees with that. Say amen. Have a tremendous week in the Lord.